Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch, and I'm going to be talking us through that passage that was just read from Daniel chapter 3. Before we do that, you might want to take a moment to get yourselves comfortable. Um, now would be a good time to um, find something to occupy your children if they're going to struggle, to grab a snack or uh, something to play with. And it's a good chance as well to get yourself a Bible. I really do recommend following along in your Bible as we go through. Uh, while you're doing that, uh, let me just fill in that time by giving you a little bit of a uh, catch up as to where we are up to. We're looking through the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're doing that because Daniel's world is a crazy, messed up world, just like our world. Uh, what we've seen in Daniel's story so far is that Daniel and his friends, they're Jews. They lived in uh, as God's people in uh, Judah, but they were removed by force from their nation and caused to live in the land of Babylon, where the cultural norms and expectations and values were completely different. And Daniel and his friends, we saw in chapter one, maintained their integrity and trust in God. In chapter 2, we saw Daniel uh, putting his neck on the line in order to save his friends and the people around him as he interpreted a dream for the king. But he relied on God for that. And in the dream, it showed that even though God's people were removed from their land, even though God's people had um, been conquered, even though the temple had been sacked, there was still a God in charge. Uh, there was still a God who had history in his hands. And God still has a plan for all history now. And he's building his kingdom. That's where we're up to so far. Hopefully you're back with us and ready to begin now in Daniel chapter three. Think about these people. William Wilberforce, Emmeline Pankhurst, Rosa Parks, Nelson Mandela, Greta Thunberg, all these people are known to us, or most are known to us, for taking a stand. All those people have courageously stood against the flow. They've refused to stand down because they've all believed that it's better to stand with integrity and face the consequences than it is to bow to the system and go against your conscience. These people stand out to us as icons, but have you ever imagined that you might be one of them? Could you stick to your convictions in the face of ridicule and alienation? Could you take a stand and do what is right, even if it means a decade in jail? Do you have a confidence and an assurance that would allow you even to choose death instead of compromise? Well, they are tough questions for a Sunday morning, but that's the world our three heroes in Daniel 3 find themselves in. And we're going through the book of Daniel because their mad world is not altogether different to ours, which means that the stand that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego take in this chapter is the stand that all people who trust in God are called to take when faced with similar circumstances. And so this story, as we look at their stand, it calls us 
to confidence. Not because it's about those inspirational heroes, but because this is a story of the God who saves. <clears throat> and that's the first thing we'll see in the passage this morning. It's a story about the God who saves. To help us follow the contours of this story in this chapter, we're going to trace it through five acts. It begins in Act 1 with extreme idolatry in verses 1 to 7. Extreme idolatry. Everything about these verses is extreme. It comes across almost like a caricature or a cartoon. You know how a caricature takes a person's features and it emphasizes something about them. Not because it's trying to mislead you, not because it's trying to distort them, but because it wants to show that these are prominent features and it wants to make them unmissable. Well, this account of King Nebuchadnezzar's statue and his worship service is bursting with unmissable details of extreme idolatry. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar makes an image of gold. Now, alarm bells are ringing straight away if you've just read the previous chapter. Sounds an awful lot like the dream of himself. It's the kind of thing that people would have bowed down and worshipped. It's the kind of thing Nebuchadnezzar would know if he'd listened to the dream is going to come crumbling down before too long. And nevertheless, there's an image of gold and its visibility is extreme. It's 60 cubits high. That's a Bible measurement for 90 feet high. And it is on the plain, which means there's no obstacles for people getting to see it. He has a dedication service, and let's check out the guest list in verse 2. It's the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the advisors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the G12 leaders. It's only the most important people in the world. It's extreme in its pomp, and it's extreme in its scope. Look at verse 4. A command is given in this ceremony. A command is given to all nations and people of every language. And it's extreme in its ceremony. Repeated again and again is this list of musical instruments. The horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe and all kinds of music. But above all, it's extreme in its idolatry. The command is given. Verse 5. Fall down and worship. And yet it's clear all the way throughout that this is not true worship. It's not the worship of the living God, but it's idol worship because the phrase, the image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar set up is repeated no less than seven times in these opening 15 verses to leave you in no doubt that this is a man-made image. The king's command to everybody on earth is to disobey God by bowing to an idol. And if you don't, the punishment is death. Well, then comes Act 2, where we meet the eager accusers, verses 8 to 15. Word comes to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, it's via a repetition of the grandeur of his idolatrous ceremony. By the time we get to verse 12, we see the accusation that there are three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they have refused to bow. Now it's a sly trap because anyone who refuses to bow is always going to be exposed. This command was not only designed 
to prompt idol worship, but it was designed to, to trap and expose those who don't agree, who want to refuse in good conscience. Well, they're just going to stand out. You'll know who they are. So Nebuchadnezzar summons the men, he repeats his command, and again it's got the threat of being thrown threat into a blazing furnace. And the first two acts of this story come to a dramatic climax at the halfway point in verse 15, where Nebuchadnezzar gives this showdown line. He says, Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Who can do it? Is there a hero to come to the rescue? Now, the author has put that there right at the seam of the two halves of the chapter as, as the climax to set the tension for the second half. But it turns out to be quite ironic because it's a clue as to what is going to happen. And actually, the rest of the chapter goes about answering that question. What God is able to rescue? But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they already know the answer to that question because in Act 3, they face this deadly situation with ordinary wisdom. Ordinary wisdom in verses 16 to 18. Finally, for the first time in the chapter when we reach verse 16, we finally get a break from all this exhausting, ridiculous pomp that Nebuchadnezzar is pushing. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego see it for what it really is. It's bells and smells. It's pure theatre. Yeah, the threat is real. But they know that there's no God behind this ridiculous statue. They know that there is a God in heaven who has forbidden worship of anyone but him. They know that there is a real God. And that this God really is in control, and that this God really is to be feared. And they know that their God, the only God, is the one who holds all the cards. So verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In ordinary wisdom, they show it's not rocket science. They take their stand on something quite plain. You do not need to defend yourself if you're obeying the living God. Even if it lands you in trouble with someone who's got limited and borrowed power. So here's what's going to happen, verses 17 and 18. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he would deliver us from your majesty's hand. That's the answer to the question in verse 15. The God we serve. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. They've grasped this, this basic, ordinary wisdom that, that the Bible teaches Jesus taught it centuries later. Jesus taught this. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but not kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. These guys know that. These guys are living their life according to that simple principle of ordinary wisdom. 
if there is a God in heaven. And if this God really is in control, well, then it's him we obey. Not a ruler whose power stretches only to the harm he can do to our bodies. Now, can you imagine if, if, if that was our perspective? If we remembered that every time we were tempted to lie or cheat, or if we were intimidated by others about keeping quiet about our faith. Yet for these guys, ordinary wisdom leads into Act 4, where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego find themselves facing fiery wrath. Verses 19 to 23. Their point-blank refusal flips a switch for Nebuchadnezzar, and back come the histrionics and overkill. And so verse 19, he orders that the fire be turned up seven times hotter than usual. It's an interesting order because I'm not too sure how they'd managed to kind of measure that without a thermostat. Uh, but then verse 20, he commands his strongest soldiers to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Again, I'm not too sure what he's thinking is going to happen, that they are going to tie a knot that is stronger than God can untie. I, I'm not too sure. But then there's another twist of irony, of course. The only people who actually die in this entire story are the soldiers who go to carry out the order and throw Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into the furnace. And that fiery wrath leads us into the finale, Act 5, where we finally see the extraordinary rescue, verses 24 to 30. Nebuchadnezzar at this point goes from furious to leaping up in amazement. As the corpses of his strong soldiers are wheeled off, he looks back into the fire and sees four chaps walking around perfectly fine. One of them looks like a son of the gods. Now, that's not necessarily the son of God, Jesus. It's probably the, the way of the Babylonians would speak about a heavenly being, an angel or something. But still, it's clear that what's going on is an act of God. It's God, the God that they serve, has come to deliver them. That's an extraordinary rescue going on right before his eyes. And it, it reduces this man to a bit of a kind of a farcical situation. In verse 26, here's this mighty, decorated, proud king. And he ends up having to go to the door of the kiln. And, and he actually has to call out the people who he's sentenced to death. He actually has to go and say, come out chaps, come on. And the pinnacle of the rescue, those details in verse 27, that not even a hair on their head was singed or a thread of their clothes scorched. And by verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar is answering his own question from earlier. He says, no other God can save in this way. He's got his answer and we've got our story. It's a story of a God who saves. And one of the three, and it's a story of three heroes who trusted in that. So now the application is obvious, isn't it? In today's world, we also face pressures to do what God forbids or to avoid what God commands. And so this surely is a call to stand with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and obey God no matter what. But if that's all we said, I, I'd be afraid that I was setting you up to fail. Because if you're anything like me, you'll know that we fail in much easier 
situations than this one. What is it that we really need to know to enable us to stand like these men? Well, we are not given this story in the Bible to inspire us, to motivate us or to guilt us into trying harder. Come on. Because you and I are not going to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with these three heroes until we've seen that this isn't simply a story of the God who saves, but this is part of the bigger story of the God who saves. And that's the second place we're going to go this morning. The bigger story of the God who saves. And here's the question. Why is it that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could say in verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it? How did they know? Well, because of this. They looked back. They knew their Bibles. They looked back into the history of their people and they saw the bigger story of the God who saves. They could look back at the stories of Joseph and of Moses and of David, all of whom had faced the pressure of extreme idolatry and temptation, all of whom faced eager accusers, and yet all of whom relied on ordinary, God-trusting wisdom. That got them into trouble. They all faced fiery wrath, and yet they all came out because of God's extraordinary rescue. And if we are going to stand with them, then we also need to know that bigger story. But we know that it doesn't end with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The Bible often works like this. You know how when the sun is behind somebody and it casts a long shadow in front of them? Well, suppose that person is, is walking just around the corner and you can't see the person yet, but you can see their shadow on the floor. And the shadow that they cast gives you some sort of sense of the, the shape and size and the movements of that person. You start to recognize them from the shadow that is coming, but the shadow is not the real thing. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are only a shadow of how God is moving in the bigger story of the God who saves. Because after them came the real one. The real, the, the person who took a stand, but didn't just merely leave us an example so we'd be inspired, but somebody who comes into our world to bring you and I into the story. This story is really a pattern of the story of Jesus. Act one, Jesus face temptation to extreme idolatry. Jesus has heard that command of verse five, you must fall down and worship. But it wasn't from some maniac king telling him to bow to a ridiculous statue. He heard those words from Satan himself. And Satan commanded Jesus to bow down in order to inherit the nations of the world. He commanded Jesus to believe that lie. And then in his life, Jesus was pressured by the most important people in his world, the religious leaders, pressured to obey man-made commands instead of obeying God. Act two, Jesus faced eager accusers. There were people accusing him all over the place. Interestingly, just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, 
they didn't accuse him of doing what was wrong, they accused him of doing what was right. <laughs> because they believed that what Jesus was doing was wrong. He faced religious courts, he faced kings, he faced governors, and was charged with a barrage of charges, and was ultimately executed on the charge of doing what was right, obeying God. Act three, Jesus' life through all of that accusation was a picture of ordinary wisdom. In fact, it was hardly ordinary wisdom, it was perfect wisdom, it was stunning wisdom, because Jesus lived every moment, like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in those few verses. Every moment, Jesus recognised a God above all else, the only one who demands our obedience and allegiance, and so he perfectly obeyed God's law. And yet, when you look at his life and his obedience, he was proving that by obeying God's good law, it's actually life-giving. But because he led, out, he led a life of stunning wisdom, then he did face Act 4, the fiery wrath. See, Jesus himself said a similar thing to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in verse 17 and 18. While they said that there is a God who could save us, but we'll submit even if he doesn't. Jesus prayed in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The difference in Jesus' story is that while God stretched out his hand to walk through the flames with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Jesus was alone, facing torture, death. He went to the cross and called out, God, why have you forsaken me? There was no angel with him in the flames. And that's because the bigger story of the God who saves is not about the hero being saved from death, but about the hero saving us by his death. And it's here on the cross that Act 5, the extraordinary rescue happens, but, but Jesus isn't the one being rescued, we are. And that's where you and I come into the bigger story of the God who saves. You see, our story is bound up with the bigger story. We are there in Act 1, but we are the ones guilty of extreme idolatry anytime we put anything before God. We're there in Act 2 with eager accusers. We have an accuser and his name is Satan. But he doesn't accuse us of doing what is right. He accuses us of doing what is wrong. And not before some wicked king, but before a holy God. And we are there in Act 3 when the holy and just God exercises divine wisdom. Finds people like me and people like you guilty. We have a lot to fear from the one who can punish soul and body in hell. God prepared a fiery wrath. But people like you and people like me, people who are accused before God. But Jesus stepped into Act 4 for us. Jesus stepped into the place of fiery wrath instead of us. He died on the cross to make that part of the story his, 
not mine, so that there is no wrath for me to face. He died, but he defeated death itself, and he was called out of the furnace. He was called out of the tomb, and he rose again. And so we do talk about Act 5, the extraordinary rescue. And the message proclaimed around the world in Jesus' name is, there is no other God who can save in this way. And this is what the New Testament says about my place in the story today. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no accuser. All the accusations that came on me were punished in God's divine wisdom, but laid on Jesus. So there is no accuser for me and the extraordinary rescue is mine. In that same chapter in the New Testament, it says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one that condemns? No one. If you are not a Christian, do you see that the Christian message then isn't some call to, to stand for a cause or stand up for what you believe in, but this is a message like no other, a message that says there is no other God who can save this way. Because it's a message that says, whoever you are, there is a way to be free from guilt and condemnation and everything that you have ever done wrong but that was all achieved by someone else stepping into your place. So all you need to do is trust. To set your hope in that one. This is what we're talking about. Uh, it's this message that gives that immense assurance and freedom. It gives us a sure hope that, that we will one day follow Jesus out into resurrection life forever. So I want you to think about that line uh, that no other God can save in this way. I want you to, to think about that and, and think whether you do agree with it. Whether you don't agree with any of the things that we've said so far or whether you've got completely different beliefs. Can you at least agree with us that there is no other God or, or hope or ambition or anything that we might pursue that will clear our guilt? and that will give you such an assurance and such a hope and security that goes even beyond death. And all just by trusting, not by doing anything. If that is all true, do you see what that does when it comes to us being called to stand with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, to obey God and risk everything? What that means is that there is no earthly accuser. Uh, there may be people accusing us of doing what is right, but there's no one accusing us of doing what is wrong. So we have no fear before the God who can destroy soul and body in hell, because we get to look back on the biggest story of the God who saves, the extraordinary rescue that is ours. And so we get to say with boldness, if we are thrown into any human blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. But even if he does not, I'm still going to obey him and not bow down to any of the gods or the image. And that means, lastly, that this story can be my 
story of the God who saves. My story of the God who saves. So here's how our story goes. We go out into the world tomorrow and we're in Act 1. We see extreme idolatry and we face Act 2, eager accusers. It's true, isn't it? Uh, we will. We will see people going to extraordinary lengths around us to shut God up and erect the idol of self or autonomy or choice. And just like in Babylon, this, this is enforced by, sometimes by command, often by pressure. Everyone is bowing down. And also by exposure. I'll be found out if I don't. I don't know what this looks like for you. Maybe it's that there's a command of a colleague or a boss telling you to lie on a form or inflate a certain figure or give a certain grade. They're telling you to do what is wrong. Maybe it's the pressure to do what everyone else is doing. Getting drunk, say. Or maybe because everyone's doing it, there's the fear of being exposed. Maybe the fear of starting university and looking like a fool because you're speaking about Jesus as if he's real. Uh, those might be some examples, but here are two examples that I do think are really quite pertinent that I see an awful lot of. And it's the instruction where there's no choice given really to wear a badge or icon of support for a movement which openly opposes God's rule, like a rainbow lanyard. And it's also seen in a rule that is given by employers with the threat of sacking that you must not speak about your faith to patients or students or clients. Both of those cases put Christians in a position of choosing between God and human commands and pressure. God has told us to speak about Jesus. So no human command overrules that. And many Christians will have a real issue of conscience to be asked to, to proactively support something which they feel is not in God's pattern for the world. And in fact, is often openly vocal about their opposition to God. And both of those positions put somebody who is a Christian in a position where they're exposed if they don't conform. And I guarantee that there are eager accusers. Uh, you know, it's not the LGBTQ activist or it's not the patient that you prayed with. It's going to be the onlooker from the side. The person who is waiting to see whether the Christian trips up and is obedient to God. And so how do we stand? Well, our story moves into obedient and ordinary wisdom, not because we are inspired by these three heroes, but because we have got the bigger story of the God who saves, we rest secure in the truth that we've got nothing to fear before the only God who holds all the cards. We know the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and so we can take that ordinary wisdom that says, do not be afraid of those who cannot harm the soul. It can only harm the body. And we have no accuser before the only one who we would fear. So there's no question really. We can apply ordinary wisdom and we can say we, we obey God every time rather than people. I want to point out that this didn't just 
This stand didn't just pop up for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego overnight. It started in chapter 1 as resolve. In chapter 1 verse 8, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, resolved to take a stand for God. And that means that for you and I, this stand that we take begins with resolve. It begins today. It begins in the very room you're sitting in right now. It begins with a decision about what you are going to do in that situation. It begins with a prayer to God that acknowledges that we benefit from the extraordinary rescue in Jesus. A prayer that expresses our joy that we are safe in Jesus and have no accuser. And therefore, a decision to use that assurance we have in Jesus to stand in obedience. And then for Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that resolve turned into a stand on a small issue. In chapter one, it was just a case of their diet. And perhaps the situation you are in today is one of those small ones. Well, take a stand there. Step out in faith. Take a stand when the stakes are low. And that's the kind of people you and I need to be today. If we expect to be the kind of people who stand firm when the stakes really are high. So when you turn down that lanyard... When you speak to that patient or student or customer about Jesus, well, you can expect that our story will turn into Act 4, that there will be fiery wrath to face. Not God's wrath. It's just the wrath of people. And it is real. There is a formal complaint. There is a disciplinary case. And in some cases, people have even lost their jobs or even worse cases, gone to prison. And just like in Daniel 3, there's no promise that God will sort that all out and remove you from the situation. But you know that God will be with you through the flames. When this played out in the life of Jesus' disciples, one of them called Peter wrote a letter that said this, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I love that. That's just it, isn't it? It's the brilliant ordinary wisdom of saying, put Christ as Lord. And that will sort out your decision. You obey him. Who is Lord in your situation? Jesus. And yet, when we speak in a way that speaks for Jesus and risks our job or our reputation, well, we do so with gentleness and respect. So it's not saying that we take our stand with rudeness or insolence. We don't share the gospel insensitively. We don't ram it into every conversation. We speak with gentleness with respect, but we are always ready to share Jesus, no matter what the fallout. Because if you suffer for doing what is right, you're blessed. Well, you might not be a revolutionary. You might not be the activist type. You might not like going against the flow, but because of Jesus, then the story of the God who saves 
becomes your story of the God who saves. Christian, fear God. Trust God. Have no fear of any accuser and take your stand next in line to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that we can cast ourselves on you. We thank you that we can trust in you. Just like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego could cast themselves on you and say you, you can deliver them or you may not, but either way, you are trustworthy. Thank you, Lord, that we can do that. We can look back at the bigger story of the God who saves and know that the stakes are never higher than when we face your wrath, but Jesus faced it for us. So we are safe. There are no eager accusers to accuse us before you, Lord. Father, please help that to be a reality in our hearts and in our souls. Help that to be a confidence that shapes every area of our life. And so, Lord, please equip us when we face a world of idolatry everywhere to be people who take our stand on ordinary wisdom, who look to Jesus and who glorify your name as we obey the God who saves. Amen.